As I'm sure you know, our society has come to believe that the most important attribute in all of life is a mindset of tolerance. Nothing is more important than tolerance, according to our culture. And the absolute worst thing anyone could ever possess is a perspective of intolerance. You can believe anything you want to believe just as long as you don't believe others are wrong. And that's what makes Jesus so unpopular in our culture today. He is not unpopular if you alter what he said and what he stood for and what he claimed and what he asserted, but he is very unpopular if you don't water down his message. For example, in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's pretty narrow. No, that's really narrow. It is extremely offensive to the mind of modern man because it sounds so intolerant. It sounds so exclusive. Yet that is what Jesus said, and he didn't back down nor apologize. He claimed to be the exclusive path of salvation, and those of us who reiterate that message are seen by many as the curse of modern society. When you stand up and say there is only one path of salvation, one path to eternal life, only one gospel, you are considered extremely dangerous in our culture. It just so happened as I was driving to the office to prepare this message, I was behind a vehicle that had on its bumper the familiar bumper sticker, Coexist. I'm sure you have seen it many times. The letters in the word Coexist are represented by the symbols of several of the world's major religions. The point of the bumper sticker, of course, is that you can hold to your religion but do so in such a way that you don't say anything negative about any other religions. Now, how can that be done? I agree that we should be respectful because there's nothing noble about being a jerk. But you can't really hold to your religion and think that everything is okay about all the other religions. There's a sense in which they are mutually exclusive. What I mean is you can't say that 2 plus 2 equals 4 and 2 plus 2 equals 9. Both aren't true. One is correct and one is wrong. In the same way, you cannot say that salvation is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ and salvation is found in being a follower of Muhammad and salvation is found in the church and salvation is found in keeping the law of Moses, etc., etc. Those statements are mutually exclusive, which is why it is impossible to hold to your religion and think that everything is okay about all other religions. If there is a single truth, 
which Jesus claimed and asserted, then that means that everything not in line with that truth is error. But our world doesn't like to think that way today. It seems too divisive. It seems too intolerant, too egotistical, too exclusive. And that is why passages like the one we are going to look at today in our continuing series through Galatians are virtually considered dangerous to many people in modern society. Let's turn together to Galatians chapter 1 as we resume our series through Galatians, which we just began a couple messages ago. So please follow along as I read verses 1 through 9 of Galatians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. As you can see from reading through this opening part of Paul's letter, he offers no expression of thankfulness for the believers in Galatia. It was very common for Paul at the beginning of his letters to express his thankfulness to God for the people to whom he was writing. Even the letter of 1 Corinthians, which was written to a church that was a mess doctrinally and morally, opens with, a, with an expression of thanks. 1 Corinthians 1.4 says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. So even when writing to a group of people who are quite a mess, Paul expressed thanks concerning them for the grace of God which was given to them, but he couldn't say that in this situation because the Galatians were spurning the grace of God by turning to works for justification and sanctification. A group called the Judaizers had come along and told the Galatians that since the Old Testament law had been given by God, that's how important it is, it was given by God, they therefore needed to seek to obey all the commands in the Old Testament if they really wanted to be pleasing to the Lord. That's what the Judaizers were telling the Galatians, and the Galatians were beginning to embrace that. They were in the process of turning from the person of Christ to a system or set of rituals, and that was extremely upsetting to Paul. That's why he words verse 6 the way he does. I marvel 
that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Some of your English translations may say, I am astonished. I am amazed. Today we might say, I am blown away. I can't believe you would turn from a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, to a works-based system. And please notice that Paul says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him. From him. That little prepositional phrase is extremely important. Paul was grieved that they were turning from a person to a system. They were turning from Jesus alone to a system that could supposedly save them or sanctify them. Beloved, this is such a key concept to understand. When people embrace a Jesus plus teaching, they are turning away from the person of Christ alone to some kind of works system that supposedly saves or sanctifies. However, Scripture is abundantly clear that salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. It is not found in any system or ritual or religious work or religious deed or religious activity. That's why Paul words this the way he does. He says the Galatians were turning away from Christ to a different gospel. The Greek word different here in verse 6 is the word heteros, which means another of a different kind. We even use the word today in English when we say someone is heterosexual. That is, they are drawn to someone of a different kind, male to female or female to male. That's the word that's used here. So you can actually translate verse 6 this way. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to another gospel. The word is literally another, though most of our English translations use the word different. The word is literally another. Paul says, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to another gospel. But then Paul catches himself. He says, I am astonished that you're turning to another gospel. And then he almost corrects himself in verse 7. He says this, which is not another. It's not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert or distort the gospel of Christ. There is a little play on words here in the Greek text. Here in verse 7, Paul uses the Greek word alas, which means another of the same kind. So he is basically saying this, if you compare verses 6 and 7, I am shocked that you are turning to another gospel, but it's not another of the same kind. It's another of a different kind. And his point is, as the NIV somewhat paraphrases it, which is really no gospel at all. That's his point. You have turned from the gospel to another gospel, which is really no gospel at all. The word gospel means good news. So Paul is saying that this new gospel message that the Galatians were beginning to embrace was not really good news at all. It was a different message that wasn't really good news. Now, it was being presented to them 
from the Judaizers as the gospel or the good news, but that's not what it was. You see, it's not good news to be told that you need Jesus plus. You need Jesus plus the sacraments, or Jesus plus baptism, or Jesus plus good works, or Jesus plus communion, or Jesus plus church membership, or Jesus plus confirmation, or Jesus plus circumcision, or Jesus plus the Old Testament law. Now mark it well, some of those things are good things. Some of those are biblical things, but when you make them a matter of salvation, you pervert or distort the gospel. That's why Paul says what he does at the end of verse 7 when he says, he says, uh, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert or distort the gospel of Christ. You see, when you add something to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, even if it's a good thing, like baptism or communion, when you add something, you are distorting the gospel. The gospel, the good news, is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So, so even adding good things to that message is distorting it. Even adding good things to that message is perverting it. Let me illustrate this from Philippians chapter 3. So turn over just a couple letters to Philippians chapter 3, where Paul once again is addressing the teaching that was coming from this group called the Judaizers. This was a big issue in the first century, a very big issue in the first century. Let me quickly establish the context of this passage. In verses 1 through 3 of Philippians 3, Paul warns about the emptiness of religion as he contrasts those who think they are the people of God with those who really are the people of God. Paul wants to drive this point home even further. So in verses 4 through 6, he turns to his own life as an illustration of what he's talking about. This is a fascinating passage of Scripture because it contains Paul's personal testimony. Three different times in the book of Acts, there is a record of Paul's conversion. Acts 9 records it, Acts 22 records it, and Acts 26 records it. Acts 9 is the historical account, and then in Acts 22 and Acts 26, Paul tells about it as part of his defense before legal officials. So Acts 9 is the record of what happened, but Philippians 3 is the record of what went on in Paul's mind. This is the internal view, if you will. We're not told about this in the historical account of Acts 9. Acts 9 is the action. Philippians 3 is the attitude. So Philippians 3 is another account of Paul's personal testimony, but the difference is that it gives us an inside perspective. It also gives us great insight into how Paul viewed salvation. Let me explain what I mean. It is interesting to note that here in Philippians 3, Paul describes salvation in business or accounting terminology. Look at verse 7. He says, But what things were gained to me, in other words, what I had in my profit column, 
these I counted loss for Christ. So what I had in my profit column, I dumped over into my loss column. Those are accounting terms. They are business terms. Paul uses words for profit and loss. And in doing so, he describes salvation as an exchange. He described it that way because Jesus described it that way. Listen to these words. I'll just read them to you from Matthew 16 as Jesus addressed this subject. He said, then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit, listen to that, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Paul uses this same imagery in Philippians 3 as he describes his own salvation as an exchange. And he uses business terminology. Everything he once considered profit, he came to consider loss. And to let you know, just to let you know how strongly Paul felt about this, the word he uses in Philippians 3.8 is actually the word, the Greek word for manure. Look at verse 8. He says, Yet indeed I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as, here's the Greek word, rubbish, my English translation says. Rubbish. All of Paul's religiosity and religious achievement and self-effort was, my translation says, rubbish. The Greek word could just as well be translated manure. It was dung. Let's look at the specifics. Back to verse 4. Paul says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. At the end of verse 3, Paul describes a true Christian as one who has no confidence in the flesh. That's a great definition of what it means to be a Christian. A lot of times we say, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means that you know Christ or you believe in Christ. You've received Christ. All of those are valid. But here's another definition. A Christian is someone who has no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in himself, his own ability, his own goodness, his own religion. No confidence in the flesh. Paul uses the term flesh to refer to our state from birth until God is pleased to bring us to new birth. And he springboards from that statement at the end of verse 3 into his own personal testimony. He says in verse 3, for, uh, we, he says in verse three for we are the circumcision, the true circumcision, who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. And then he begins to list his religious achievements. Why does Paul say, listen, if anyone would have reason to have confidence in the flesh, I'm the guy. Why? Well, here's why. Verse 5, he says this, his first list, uh, the first thing on the list, circumcised the eighth day. It's no wonder that Paul listed this first. He knew how much stock the Jews put in circumcision. 
He knew that this was the main thing the Jews trusted in to secure them as children of God. He knew that they referred to Gentiles in a derogatory way by calling them not unsaved, not unbelievers, but calling them uncircumcised. He knew the statement in the Talmud that said, the commandment of circumcision is more important than all the other injunctions of Scripture, end quote. So the first credential he lists is the fact that he was an eighth-dayer. He wasn't like Ishmael, who, who wasn't circumcised until he was 13 years old. No, no, he was like Isaac, who had been circumcised on the eighth day. He wasn't like some of the Judaizers who were troubling the Philippians. No doubt some of these Judaizers had been converted to Judaism later in life, and they were circumcised then when they were converted, not Paul. He was an eighth-dayer. But he says here that it is meaningless when it comes to the issue of salvation. In fact, it's worse than meaningless. It is manure because salvation is not by any religious right. A modern-day parallel to this is the trust that many people put in baptism. They see the importance the Scripture places on baptism, and the Scripture does emphasize it, but they twist the meaning to make it necessary for salvation, so they end up trusting in it for salvation. That's manure. God was the one who gave circumcision to the Jews as a sign of His covenant with them, but when they twisted it to be the key issue of salvation, they polluted it into manure. The same thing is true with baptism. God has given us baptism as a sign or symbol of salvation. But when people twist it to be the key issue of salvation, they pollute it into manure. Then Paul says this in verse 5. He says he was of the stock of Israel. Paul was a pure Jew. He came from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was born in the right family. But he realized that it wouldn't save him because salvation doesn't come through family ties. Then Paul says here in verse 5 that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. That was the tribe that gave Israel her first king. The tribe of Benjamin had a place, a special place of honor, was held in high esteem. Even after the nation was in turmoil, Benjamin remained loyal to the house of David. So the tribe of Benjamin was a high-ranking tribe. Paul was from that tribe, but Paul came to realize that that did not gain him salvation. In fact, he says later, a couple verses later, I was trusting in that, and therefore it was manure. And because he was a high-ranking and pure Jew, he summed that up in the next phrase here in Philippians 3, when he said he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. To be considered a Hebrew of the Hebrews, you had to know the Hebrew language, speak the Hebrew language, and observe the Hebrew customs. By Paul's day, many Jews weren't doing that. They were Hellenistic. They were part of Greek culture. They spoke the Greek language, not Paul. Paul was as Hebrew as you could get. He was circumcised the eighth day from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from the pure, unmixed tribe of Benjamin. He spoke the language. He observed the customs. So he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. But he says it was manure 
because salvation is not by rituals and customs and observances and practices. And then he says at the end of verse 5 there, concerning the law, a Pharisee. Now, when you hear that, you need to You need to sort of dismiss from your mind the concept that you have of the Pharisees from the gospel accounts because you know the interactions Jesus had with them. But you need to pull that out of your mind to appreciate what Paul is saying here because the Pharisees were the religious elite. Their very name means the separated ones. They had separated themselves off from all common life and from all common tasks in order to make it the one aim of their lives to keep every smallest detail of the Old Testament law. It was the highest level of religious achievement in Israel. Where did this group come from? You maybe ask that question. You, you read your Bible, you're reading through the Bible, you read through the Old Testament, you come to the book of Malachi, then you're finished with the Old Testament, you come to the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, and you start reading, and all of a sudden here are the Pharisees. Where did they come from? Well, they actually grew out of the intertestamental period as a reaction to the liberalism that began to take hold in Israel. They looked around at Israel and they said, man, we're getting liberal. We need to sort of, you know, raise the bar here, raise the standard once again. So they started out with commendable men and with a commendable cause. But eventually they came to think that this would save them. Now, there are still many people like this today in lots of different religions. There are people who hold to strict adherence to religious laws, religious ceremony. There are men like this in the ranks of Mormonism, Buddhism, just whatever, just list it. They live lives of supposed self-denial, strict adherence to religious laws and ceremony, but they are lost. They're headed for a Christless eternity because they're trusting in the wrong thing. They're trusting in all that stuff. Salvation is not by religion. Never was there a more religious man on planet earth than the Apostle Paul. And he says, I finally came to realize it was dung. It was manure. Worthless. And he says in verse 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. The Jews considered zeal the most commendable of all virtues. Paul epitomized zeal. He was a sincere man, zealous, but wrong, dead wrong. Sincerity is a commendable virtue, but it isn't the most important issue when it comes to salvation. Truth is just as important. Sincerity without truth is error, and truth without sincerity is mere mental assent. Both are extremely important when it comes to the issue of salvation. You need to know the truth, and you need to believe it sincerely. I often hear the statement, and I'm sure you do too in society, we hear this all the time, it doesn't matter what you believe or what religion you're in, as long as you're sincere. That's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. It's possible to be sincere and sincerely wrong. If your children get sick in the middle of the night and you want to help them and you accidentally give them poison, is that going to help them as long as you're sincere? Obviously not. Sincerity is not the main issue at that point. It's accuracy with the medicine you give them. 
And yet this is how many, so many people think about salvation. They think it's not important to have the truth and believe the truth and act on the truth just as long as you act on something. Beloved, the philosophy that says everyone who is sincere is going to make it to heaven is a lie out of the pit of hell. A lot of sincere people are going to end up in hell shocked because their sincerity didn't cut it. Just read Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Salvation is not a reward for sincerity. Then Paul adds his final religious credential at the end of verse 6 where he says this, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. People could not point to anything in Paul's life on the outside that disqualified him. He was meticulous in his religious observances. There was no demand of the law he did not fulfill. Now understand, Paul was not claiming sinless perfection. He's not saying he was perfect. Basically what he's saying is, listen, I fulfilled the demands of the law. Therefore, when, when conscious of sin, he offered the prescribed sacrifice. He did everything the way he was supposed to do it even making the sacrifices for sin. Now understand that all of this, all of this was considered profit by Paul. This is what he had in his profit column when he came face to face with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Then he was struck with the truth he would later write in Romans 3.20, by the deeds of the law, no flesh, will be justified in his sight. No flesh. You cannot earn salvation. You can get baptized, join the church, give money to the poor, give to charity, help those in need, volunteer for community projects, lend a helping hand, visit those who are sick or in prison, or any host of other things, but it will not gain you salvation. All those things are commendable. Those are good things but they won't gain you salvation. When Paul came face to face with Jesus Christ, he saw all of his own merit that he was holding on to as manure. That's what he says in verse 7. He says, But what things were gained to me, these I counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, yes indeed, I count all things, all of these things lost for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as manure that I may gain Christ. Paul trashed all of his own merit when he met Christ on the road to Damascus. And what he's saying here in Philippians 3 is he trusted in all that stuff. That's what he was trusting in. But when he met Christ, he realized that it was all useless. In fact, it was all worse than useless because, please hear this, to hold on to it would result in eternal damnation. Now consider this, beloved. There's nothing wrong with some of these things that Paul lists. In fact, some of them are even noble, commendable, biblical. But when you trust them for your eternal destiny... They will damn you. That's why Paul came to consider them as manure. Mark it well. Sin is not the only manure in God's eyes. 
so is religion and self-trust and self-achievement for salvation. It's all manure. So Paul willingly exchanged it all for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This powerfully illustrates the point that when you add something to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, even if it's a good thing, like baptism or communion, you are distorting the gospel. And that is why Paul uses such strong words here in Philippians 3 and why Paul uses such strong words in Galatians 1. Let's go back to Galatians chapter 1 to our text there. Because distorting the gospel is such a serious matter, notice what Paul says in verse 8. He says, but even if we, he includes himself in there, first person plural pronoun, even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That is an extremely strong statement. Maybe Paul didn't mean to say that so strongly. Maybe we misheard him. Surely he didn't mean to say that anyone who presents a different gospel message should be cursed by God. Surely it's not that big of a deal. Just in case those kinds of thoughts would come to mind, Paul repeats himself. Verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, then what you have received, let him be accursed. If we didn't get it the first time, we better get it this time. And Paul's wording here indicates that this was something that he had already said to the Galatians when he was with them. In other words, here in verse 9 when he says, as we have said before, he's not referring to verse 8, what he just said. He's referring to what he said before when he was with them. That's how important this is. Paul addressed the subject when he was with them, and he stated it again in verse 8, and now he reiterates it again in verse 9. If anyone including an angel from heaven, or a preacher, or a pastor, or a priest, or a nun, or an imam, or a rabbi, or a reverend, if anyone proclaims any other gospel, let him be accursed. The word accursed means to be damned, condemned, placed under the curse of God. It's the Greek word anathema. It's a word that describes experiencing, being put in a place where you experience the wrath of God. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, says that is what someone deserves who perverts or distorts the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You know, sometimes people will say, I know that such and such a, a religious group doesn't have everything right, but they mean well. 
They're really sincere. So maybe we shouldn't feel the need to take such a strong stand. Even committed Christians will make those kinds of comments sometimes. And I appreciate the heart behind them because it is awkward, is it not? It's awkward in our day and age, in our society, to take this kind of stand, to even read Galatians 1, 8, and 9. To even read those verses out loud. But beloved, I can't think of anything we could possibly say that would be as strong as these Holy Spirit-inspired statements by Paul in verses 8 and 9. I can't think of anything that could be said that's stronger. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed, as we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. It doesn't matter how nice a person may be. doesn't matter how sincere a person may be. If he or she promotes a salvation message that perverts or distorts the true gospel, the Holy Spirit makes it clear here in verses 8 and 9 what the Father and the Son think about that message. As I said last week, it's a terrible thing to steal from people, rob people, assault people, hurt people. It's a terrible thing to murder. It's a terrible thing to rape. Those are heinous things. But listen, nothing is worse than misleading people with a distorted gospel. Nothing comes close to comparing with how heinous that is. As awful as murder is and rape and assault and robbery and all, as awful as those things are, nothing comes close to comparing with distorting the gospel and leading people to a Christless eternity. It is a damnable thing in the eyes of God for anyone or any group to say or teach or assert that you cannot be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's the message of Galatians. Let's bow together, please, as we close this morning. As we bow together, contemplating what we have seen this morning here in Galatians and in Philippians, it's obviously, it's, it's, it's so clear from from the Holy Spirit's wording how serious this issue is. And Paul doesn't say these things to be harsh. He doesn't say them just to, to sound mean or unkind. He says these things because there's nothing more important than this. James says, your life is just a vapor. Even if you live to be 100 years old, it's just a, a vapor compared to eternity. So if you get eternity wrong, if you get that wrong, what else really matters? That's why the Holy Spirit is so firm, so direct. That's why these words seem so hard. Because nothing is more important than making sure we get eternity right. 
making sure we have the gospel right, that salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. Not only that, I believe that one of the reasons why Paul and the Holy Spirit speak so directly is because they know how many people trust in other things for salvation. Oh, there are so many people in our world who trust in their, just fill in the blank, their goodness, their works, their baptism, their confirmation, their just, it's just, the, the list is almost endless. There's something in the human heart that wants to hold on to something like that that's tangible and religious rather than holding to Christ and Christ alone. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is very direct, very firm, very forward throughout the New Testament with words that even could seem harsh or unkind. Because if you miss eternity, nothing else matters. So turn to Christ and Christ alone. If you're trusting in anything else, even something good, realize it's just manure compared to trusting in Christ. And turn to Christ and Christ alone. Father, we need to be reminded of this because it just goes so countercultural. It goes so against the grain. Uh, we, we find like we're swimming upstream to hold on to and affirm that salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. That we, to, to hold on to what Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. May we never be willing to compromise that message because to do so is to distort or pervert the gospel and to lead people to a Christless eternity. Father, I pray for anyone right now hearing these words who's trusting in the wrong thing, even a good thing, but trusting in the wrong thing for salvation. May he or she let go, let go of that and see it not, no longer as profit but as loss and in its place put one thing, Christ. Christ and Christ alone. We pray these things in his exalted name. Amen.